Hey, soccer fans, welcome back to the Feed the Fire podcast. I'm your host, Nick, and the MLS Cup playoffs have kicked off. Meanwhile, our hometown Chicago Fire have decided to kick back. While we have other teams playing for trophies, announcing roster moves, looking at new coaches, we have the Chicago Fire organization who is just quiet with everything. But we are going to explore a few rumors and some news and explore some other coverage that has come out this past week on the Chicago Fire, including a a little bit of a controversial take to fold the Chicago Fire team. Um, Also, we are going to explore a coaching rumor uh, of Chris Armis. We'll see if that has any legs. Shout out to Adnan Besic, uh, who writes for or does the Sad Boys podcast and writes for MLS Multiplex. So we will uh, give you our thoughts on kind of a conversation he may have unintentionally started. So stay tuned for all of that and more right after this. Hey, soccer fans. Welcome back once again to the Feed the Fire podcast. I am your host, Nick. And if you don't know... MLS playoffs have kicked off, and we are going to continue to be doing our weekly podcast coming out every Monday or Tuesday for you here throughout the playoffs and even into the offseason. We are planning a lot more content and a lot more fun soccer and Major League Soccer related things, so make sure you're liking, subscribing, following, rating, all that good stuff so you are the first to find out about all the latest news from the Feed the Fire podcast. Now, as I mentioned before the intro music, the playoffs have kicked off. The Eastern Conference wild card game was exactly that wild, with the Red Bulls crushing Charlotte 5 2. This is what Red Bulls fans hoped their team could be throughout the season. You have Elias Manuel with the hat trick, Token and Barlow each pitch in with a goal, and even without scoring, Lucinius looked dangerous, was getting into some dangerous spots, finding some opportunities. So that is what the Red Bulls wanted to see from their squad throughout the year. Maybe, maybe they could turn that into a little bit of momentum against the top-seeded FC Cincinnati once they got into the to the first round. Uh, in the Western Conference wildcard, we saw a Sporting Kansas City team survive the San Jose Quakes on penalty kicks when after a 0-0 draw in regulation, they end up winning 4-2. By the way, here's the here's the crazy trivia out of that match. Tim Melia, Sporting Kansas City's goalkeeper, is now 7-0. Seven wins, no losses in his professional career in shootouts. He's undefeated in PK shootouts as a pro. It is a ridiculous statistic, and it shows you just how good he is, and it shows you how much faith his team has in him as well, as well as they got some decent shooters then too. He's still got to convert. But what stood out to me in this match, not only did Kansas City really kind of struggle to find that offense that had gotten them into this wild card spot, but in the PK shootout itself, man, I saw two of the worst PKs I had ever seen. And I don't want to dwell on this too much because we got a lot to go over. But seeing Alan Pulido like pull up, it looked like he almost pulled a muscle taking that PK and just kind of like trickled it to the center of the goal. I don't know what happened on that one. If he was trying to catch the goalie napping or getting him to dive one way or other, realized he couldn't pull it off and just gave up on it. But then with San Jose, the opportunity to take the lead on it, because 
or at least come back and draw level because Melia had stopped their first one. You've got Captain Jackson Yule coming up, and he just skies it, puts it not just over the crossbar, way over the crossbar. And I'll give him credit, I guess, trying to pick out that top left corner. But, man, it was one of the worst executed PKs I've seen. And I know for a lot of USMNT fans, that's just more fodder for them to throw against Jackson Ewell. Uh, to never see him in a USMNT jersey again. But it was not a good PK. And it just just makes me wonder, why are penalties so bad? Like, I understand you want to play games with the keeper, or the keeper wants to play games with the shooter, and you want to try and do all these different things as shooters. But, I mean, for my two cents, pick a corner, hit it hard. And, and if you hit it hard enough and you place it well enough, no goalie's going to stop it. Um, if, you, if you like playing the games – play the games as long as you can pull it off. Again, the only the only good goal is one that's in the back of the net, right? You're never going to say someone who scored it was a bad goal because it went in. Anyway, let's move on now to round one. Remember, this is a best of three series for the first round in the Major League Soccer playoffs right now. So each, it's first to two. They're not, obviously they're not playing all three games if they don't need to, but the other little twist is there is no stoppage time, or not stoppage time, there's no extra time they will go straight to penalty kicks if it is a draw uh after regulation uh we hadn't seen that in the first game of the first round so far but what really stood out to me was kansas city's performance at st louis they were the one away team to win in that first game and they only had about 38 possession 38 percent possession of this match and they looked dominant throughout so kudos to vermis and co where I think they really excelled was they kept the pressure up. When they were up 3-1 or 2-1, they kept the pressure up. They did not park the bus, play for a draw, knowing they've got Tamilia in goal, who's probably going to win them a shootout. They kept the pressure on. They continued to push. Even when they were up 4-1, you'd think St. Louis would be desperate to get anything going forward. That's when Kansas City had some of their most possession. So kudos to SKC. So far, my upset pick that Kansas City beat St. Louis is, is still secure. Looking at some of the other matches, uh, Philly defeats New England 3-1. to one. Philly's offense comes to life. Gosh, the Philly seems to be just a different team once they get into the playoffs, and we'll see how long that lasts. Uh, LAFC 5-2 victors over Vancouver. Another great performance by the black and gold. Uh, really, even if their defense did give up those two goals, well, you can kind of Take a little bit of time off, I suppose, when you're scoring five and when you've got a best of three series ahead of you. Houston defeats RSL two to one. I I got a chance finally to really sit down and watch Hector Herrera for the Houston Dynamo. And I, I sent a message to our, our group chat with some other independent MLS media content creators. And the Houston uh, chat responded, yeah, he's been this good all season. So it is incredible to think that if he is still playing this well at his age uh, and having this good form going into the playoffs, that could bode well for Houston. And I've seen a number of brackets that have the Dynamo winning the Western Conference. Coming back to the East, Cincinnati then dominates Red Bulls 3-0. So Red Bulls could not keep that momentum going against just a Cincinnati team that is still firing on all cylinders. And as people here in Chicago pointed out, well, that, that could have been the Chicago fires fate, you know, may, barely getting by Charlotte and then getting crushed by Cincinnati. So maybe it's for the best that they didn't have the opportunity to look even worse. 
Uh, Orlando ends up beating Nashville one nothing. This surprised me. Not that Orlando won, but it that it was one nothing. These are two teams who have good offense. Uh, Orlando can do it in a couple of different ways. Nashville really likes to play that quick counterattack. Uh, but for a one nothing game, Orlando just had the right game plan to take down Nashville. Seattle then out west wins two nothing over Dallas. And you're starting to see the Jesus Ferreira. Is he in form? Isn't he in form? What's going on with him? Why can't Dallas get any offense going? Uh, meanwhile, Seattle just does what they do. Or does does what they does, does what they does. Anyway, Seattle just wins playoff games. 2-0 to the Sounders, holding serve, holding advantage going into game two. So that's the playoffs so far. Next topic I wanted to go over with you all here is an article that came out by Orrin Schwartz. Uh, a few days back, probably about four or five days ago now, um, he essentially says that the MLS should give the Chicago Fire the Chivas USA treatment and fold the club and start a new franchise here in Chicago again. Um, one of his comparisons was, yeah, look how it worked for LAFC. They they shut down Chivas, and they bring in LAFC, and LAFC is one of the top clubs. That's fantastic. Um and honestly, I, I saw the headline. I saw people sharing it on social media. Um, our good friend John Donovan was texting me. Did you see the article? What do you think? I'm just like, I don't I don't want to get into this clickbait. Like, because it's totally clickbait. The idea that the MLS is going to fold the fire, especially in year, at the end of year two with new ownership uh, and with a new coach on the way, potentially GM, you know, we're, we're not holding our breath to see heights get moved um, with maybe two or three or four TPs, possibly, if they really work some roster magic here, getting rid of Torres and Shakiri and Dumbia. Uh, and if the league rumors are true that they're going to add a fourth one, like, why would you fold a team like that? Um, and additionally, if you're going to start a new franchise, look at St. Louis. And it pains me to say this as a Chicago fan of, of all sports, but look at St. Louis. They started their team over a year before this season. It wasn't like they announced that they're, they're a new franchise in January and started playing in March. It's not like they had a USL club to pull from uh, to have a maybe kind of a core of players or maybe some youth academy that they could maybe have a product on the field. Nope. St. Louis spent over a year developing this squad, bringing in a coach early, making their DP, first DP signing, bringing in players, and they had an entire year to work together before they played um, their first MLS game. So if you're going to do any sort of expansion, franchise, whatever work here in Chicago, that is is something that I think clubs and the league need to look at. Like, give your team a little extra time to get to build a roster, to build an organization, to get people in place. Um, the only counter argument to that I can see at this point, just off the top of my head, is you need to take advantage of uh, the fan base getting excited for a new club. Like you're, you're going to get them all ramped up. Hey, we got a club. And then like they got to wait a year and a half for a game. So that, that would be the only caution on that side of it. Um, so I really don't think the whole idea of folding the fire and starting a new franchise is, is even realistic, is reasonable, is within the realm of possibilities or even something we should be discussing especially because a club like Cincinnati can turn it around. Colorado was on the verge of turning it around, and then they had some issues. RSL is, like, on the verge of turning it around with 
couple decent player signings, a good coach coming in, new ownership, right? Like you can do that in MLS within a season or two. And and the problem with Chicago not being able to do it is we've had now what three owners in the last five, six years, um, probably as many coaches, probably as many DPs. Every coach has had a different philosophy. Um, so there has been nothing consistent with the Chicago fire top down from the front office ownership executives all the way down to the coaches, the players, and even the second team. We saw this season, you know, the coaching staff didn't know how to manage a first team and a second team roster. They were just throwing guys willy nilly all over the place. And where I think Chicago, where I think Schwartz forgets what's going on with the Chicago fire organization, we're seeing an investment in academies. We're seeing investment in training facilities. We're seeing uh, investment in homegrowns, right? So they're kind of building that foundation quietly. And I don't know if the fire need to be doing a better job of marketing that and putting that out in the open uh, to, to kind of let the fans know that this isn't just um, we're doing everything for the first team and, and the rest of the organization be darned. Like they are trying to build that foundation They're I don't know if they're doing a good job about it. We certainly haven't seen it uh, on the first team and, and to a lesser extent on the second team. Um, but that is kind of the goal, I think, right now for Mansueto's first couple of years is you need to build that foundation in order to have a sustained success. Whereas this rabid fan base, all they've seen is failure for I don't know how many years now. Can I count back that far off the top of my head? I haven't won a playoff game in 2009. As I, as I put on Twitter, I have had more marriages than the Fire have had playoff wins in the last 12 years. By the way, marriage count one. <laughs> still with my lovely wife of 11 years so uh something to keep in mind there as you go through this article as you see the kind of arguments that orange Schwartz is putting forth um again i hated clickbait i did go and i re- i did read the article and what he says is true um the fire have performed very very poorly on the field obviously we know their playoff record or lack thereof attendance is very very poor um, I think the average attendance this season was a little over 18,000. But if you think about it, the Inter-Miami match, when they had 60,000 plus there, that would be the equivalent of three games with no attendees. So that is hyperinflating uh, the statistics. So I'm not going to discount it because you got them in the stadium. You got the ticket sales. Who knows how that's going to translate in the future. But we just maybe need to put a little asterisk there and, and qualify the attendance of the Chicago Fire this year. But again, poor performance, poor attendance. But I think he's missing those bigger points of we have a new owner. It's in his second year. His focus right now is elsewhere. Um, Heights sold Mansueto on. I can build a playoff team this season. Uh, and unfortunately, he, he could not build out the top part of the roster. I don't think anyone is arguing that Haile Selassie was a terrible signing, that extending Mauricio Pineda was a bad idea. Uh, I don't think anyone was saying bringing Jardin Shakiri in initially was a bad idea, but then they saw the price tag and then they saw he was just here to kind of keep in shape before uh, the world cup last season. And, and who knows what he's doing here. Um, quick move to fire Ezra and then just have Klopas kind of run the same thing back. I bring in two assistants for Klopas and now I'm not making any announcements about it. Like we we're seeing the front office. They can do like, the depth stuff, like finding Jonathan Dean, who I know he's a, a flashpoint for a lot of people and want to talk about American soccer, but finding Jonathan Dean, um, again, getting White Olmsberg back to health, keeping him there. Um, 
leaning in on Gutierrez, Brady, bringing in Chris Mueller, who looked like a really good signing until he got hurt this season. Um, Suke, decent signing. I, I Again, I don't think he performed to the level he should have or we expected. But again, we're getting those decent signings. And when the fire make the playoffs, fingers crossed, or are back in contention for a trophy, you're going to see guys like Suke, Dean, Herbers, Pineda, um, maybe Chris Mueller as your subs, as your 12 through 17 on your roster. And then you just have to have, you know, your your hit on your DPs. That's where they've missed. And that is the biggest thing in MLS. If you are going to win, you need to have good DPs. And that is just like an NFL franchise who cannot hit on a quarterback. Gee, sound familiar, Chicago fans? People get fired over either giving bad deals to or drafting terrible quarterbacks. Or in the NBA, if you are drafting terrible first-round picks and and you're you cannot develop any young talent. Thank goodness the NBA got the G League and they can actually start developing things instead of just relying on colleges to do it for them. I digress. You know what? Maybe I'll go talk about that with my friend, the sports page blog, about how the G League is going to be good for college and the NBA. Again, another topic for another time. Uh, but what the fire as an organization need to do is hit on their top end signings. They have not. Again, whether or not they keep heights, whether he gets to a different role, all to be determined. The fire have been mum on it, despite speculation being heights would not be affecting day-to-day management going forward. Now, speaking of those DPs, speaking of that, um, oh, here was my last note on that point. The Chicago fire are much closer to Cincinnati Wooden Spoon and, you know, Toronto in their early days. Um, which can be turned around with maybe a couple years of good signings and good management moves than they are to Chivas. Um, and again, it was a different ownership issue, right? Chivas being owned by uh, the group in, in Mexico, the, the original Chivas club, who really ran clubs. They tried to run this club the way they ran their Mexico club, and it did not work. So anyway, there's a couple other notes I wanted to throw in there. But speaking of our DPs, we've all had our opinions on Shakiri, on Torres, Jairo Torres, and Usman Dumbia. We all have our opinions based on how they've played, definitely colored by how much money they're making. Jordan Shakiri is the third highest paid player in MLS this season, and when he was signed, he was the highest paid player in MLS. Who are the other two, you ask? Well, Chicharito, who um, got signed shortly after Shakiri, and I wonder if we dodged a bullet there, Chicago Fire fans, because there's a lot of interest in him coming to Chicago, and I think it was between the Galaxy and the Fire uh, when he said he was going to come play in MLS Maybe we dodged a bullet there, but I don't know if I'd rather have an injured Chicharito or a Jared and Shakiri who constantly thinks he's injured. I don't know. Um, but despite our subjective opinions, objectively, they are the worst DP trio in MLS. And this is from an article from The Athletic here. Uh, and here's what The Athletic said. This is absolutely the worst money spent for production DP situation in the league. Torres, a supposed attacking player, I love that, supposed attacking player, uh, who signed for a $6 million transfer fee, has exactly zero goals and zero primary assists in 41 Chicago appearances across all competitions. Shakiri is a defensive liability who has not added anywhere near enough value going forward. He was signed for $7.5 million and has the third most expensive salary in the league, on the goals plus front, if they each played just one more half, Torres would rank 30th 
just above Joswiak among wingers and Dumbia would be 16th among defensive mids just below Will Trap. Yep, so Will Trap is better than our DP D-mid. Uh, the article continues, it's disastrous. They'll try again in the winter. If Dumbia's loan is made a permanent transfer, he won't have to be a DP next year, so they'll have at least one spot open and as many as three if one or both of Torres and Shakiri leave. So here, that, that's what they wrote. Here is what it came out to, that the three of them combined were 22nd in minutes amongst other DP groups. Uh, they were tied for 24th in goals. Shakiri had five goals. Um, Torres and Dumbia had zero. Not that we expected any, any of those from Dumbia. Um, and they're tied for 24th in assists. Uh, Shaq with five, Torres with one, Dumbia with two. But if you look at their their goals added for their groupings, for the different positional groupings, right? Um, they're 18th in the league. They actually have allowed uh, 0.78 more goals than, say, the average, right? So they are they have, as a group of designated players, been a negative impact on the season, and in their individual positions, they have all negative goals added with Jared and Shakiri 17th of 22 attacking midfielders. He actually is at minus 0.55 goals added. So, or we could say 0.55 goals subtracted from the fire this year. <laughs> yeah. He, he, we, the fire would have actually been a better team if he didn't play, but a lot of fans already know that. Now, what does this mean for the organization? It is a poor reflection on the players. First and foremost, they sucked. They sucked this year. So they have to wear that. They have to own that. I don't think it's going to bother Shakiri or Doombie all that much, and it probably is not going to bother Jairo Torres all that much either, just the way he, he likes to be about town, getting in social media posts. But it's going to affect his next contract. It's going to maybe affect where Doombia goes. I hope not to see him back here. I hope we can get a better player on this roster, or at least a younger player that we can develop into a better player, maybe sell on. I would hate to see any of these three guys be on the roster for next year. But that's not my call. So not only did the players play poorly and it reflects on them, the coaches had terrible game plans for these guys. You've had Jared and Shakiri and Brian Gutierrez now for two seasons and very, very rarely were, were Ezra and his staff or Klopas and his staff able to figure out the way to best utilize them both together. They couldn't figure out who's going to play central. They couldn't figure out who's going to play on the wing. They couldn't figure out who's going to come off the bench if they need to. The, the best the best was when one of those two guys was injured and the coaching staff didn't have to make the decision. They just picked the other guy. Now that also leads up to the executive office. Why are you signing guys who play the same position when you have a promising young midfielder in Brian Gutierrez, and then you bring in a DP like Shakiri? unless they thought Gutierrez wasn't ready to be a starter and that he was going to be coming off the bench or learning from Shakiri or, you know, spot starter tournament type starter, things of that nature. Uh, that'd be the only way I could rationalize it in my head. But we all saw it at the end of last season. Gutierrez needed to get more minutes and get into the starting lineup. So you have issues with how they're constructing a roster, which again tells me that they're a little bit closer to uh, a Cincinnati team or a Colorado RSL team where they can just kind of get the right guy to make a couple right moves rather than fold it up, burn it to the ground, and start with the new franchise. Um, speaking of Heights' signing, remember his best signing was probably Marin Haile Selassie. Um, but also, if you really want to praise him for bringing in Dumbia, who 
again, had a lot of hype coming in as a solid defensive midfield player, um, good at tackling, intercepting, you know, could have probably been a little better passing the ball forward. But what's that tell you about Heights? His two best and biggest signings have been from the sister club in Lugano. Does he not have a scouting network? Like, maybe we got to talk about that a little bit more often. Or, as we heard earlier on in the season when the Fire couldn't sign a number nine, couldn't sign a DP striker, nobody wants to do business with them. So I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a combination of everything. I have to think it is. But he's poor scouting, poor business. Nobody wants to work with the Fire. And that's why you got to overpay and just kind of scramble from your club and your organization, your sister club. Okay, last little bit of information here. This was something I teased at the beginning of the episode prior to the that awesome music, right? Uh, Chris Armis as manager of the Chicago Fire? Possibly? Do we want it to happen? It's only rumors. It's only conjecture right now. Um, Adnan Besic first put this out in the universe when he was on the CHGO Fire podcast uh, with Alex Campbell a couple of weeks ago. And we were having a good Twitter conversation. Please jump on Twitter. Uh, look me up at Glasshouse Soccer. Note second E. Thank you, character limits. Um, and you can look at our conversation and what we said. And if you have any thoughts on it, email me. GlasshouseSoccer at gmail.com. That time with the E. Um, but it's actually kind of worth talking about this. It's kind of fun little speculation here, right? Since Chicago Fire fans don't have a lot of fun in off seasons or when everyone else is in the playoffs. Um, so Armist to the Fire. I initially was, am opposed to it, um, but I wanted to give it some thought. I wanted to give it my due diligence, you know, be, do the lawyer thing, look at both sides of it, right? So here is his uh, managerial career. Uh, in 08, he started off as a Chicago Fire assistant coach. Uh, nothing in 09 and 2010, at least according to Wikipedia here. Then he was the head coach of the Adelphi Panthers, a women's team uh, in New York. Then he jumped on with the Red Bulls from 2015 to 2018 as an assistant, our, our New York Red Bulls here. He became the head coach of Red Bulls in July of 2018 and then coached them through 2020. Then he went over to TFC for a hot minute, 15 games only. I remember how a disaster that was. Then he got picked up to join the staff of Manchester United as an assistant there for a couple seasons. In 2023, he was hired as a Leeds United assistant and is now a co-interim coach over at Leeds United. So that's his his coaching career. And as, as we remember him uh, from playing in the MLS, uh, his first two inaugural seasons with the Galaxy, and then playing with the Fire from 98 through 07, winning all those trophies with the Chicago Fire. So what are what are the pros and cons of hiring Armas? Let's, let's kind of weigh it out here. For Armas, the pros of hiring him, he's got MLS playing and coaching experience. And as we've seen in our Chicago Fire organization, you get Wiki to come over, you get Heights to come over, you get all these guys who have no coaching experience. I mean, Ezra had no head coaching experience, and it's too bad that he couldn't really learn from uh, Smetzer while he was in Seattle or uh, Burhalter and, um, oh my gosh, Porter when he was with Columbus. Uh, I don't know if he was there with Burhalter, but even with Porter, who's a good soccer mind, right? So again, you've got guys who have had no real track record in MLS. So it's a pro for Chris Armas that he's got this MLS experience. 
the Premier League coaching experience is good too. He's got a little different take on things. He's got some other flavors he can bring, some other influences, other drills, trainings, conditionings, you know, strategies, things he's seeing. Maybe there's things going on in the game in England that haven't really translated to MLS yet that he might be able to bring uh, and be at the forefront of. Maybe, again, this is real glass half full type stuff here, right? And we kind of saw that when he was the Red Bulls manager. They tried to get away from that typical Red Bulls high press, counter press, energy drink soccer, you know, fill in the, the typical phrases when you're talking about the Red Bulls. He tried to get away from that a little bit and people hated him for it. And some people actually kind of liked it because, you know, what's the definition of insanity doing the same thing over again and expecting different results? Well, the Red Bulls hadn't done anything in the postseason for so many years with that same brand of soccer. So he tried to mix it up a little bit, but it didn't go well. Front office didn't like it. Fans didn't like it. And above all the players didn't like it. And they ended up tuning him out. So that is the pro not to mention his international playing experience. He played in a few friendlies, for Puerto Rico, Caribbean Cup, considered by FIFA to be friendlies, and then, of course, with the USMNT. So a lot of playing and managing experience in the United States and England. I think that bodes well for him. And maybe now that he's had those couple of bad runs, if he does is brought in as a head coach in Chicago or elsewhere, he can finally say, okay, I've learned from that. Here's what I need to do. The cons. Also, his coaching record. His coaching record is also the reasons why we shouldn't hire him as the manager of the Chicago Fire. When he was with TFC in 2021, his last head coaching gig, uh, two wins, three draws, 10 losses. Like I said, he lasted 15 games. They couldn't get him out of there fast enough. He did not win over the locker room. He did not have buy-in from the players. Everything went wrong from the start with his TFC tenure. Now, his time with the Red Bulls was a little better. His record actually... Right around 500, 33 wins, 11 draws, and 27 losses uh, in about a two-year span coaching the Red Bulls. In 2018, he made it to the semifinals of the MLS Cup playoffs, and that was the best that he had taken that team. Otherwise, they had never made it out of the first round after that. They still made the playoffs every year, but never making it out of the first round. And so the criticism of him was he was doing it. His best result was with someone else's players and style, and he just kind of ran with it for the second half of the season. There was that new coach bump that happens, right? Um, but he could not make Red Bulls any better and eventually lost the club, lost the locker room, all that stuff. Um, so, you know, kind of kind of pick your poison with Armas. Do you, do you commend him for trying to do something a little different, or do you hate him for trying to do something different with the Red Bull organization? So that's kind of the pros and cons of it. The only other pro that I will say is if, if Armas does come to Chicago, then I get to tell my Chris Armas story a lot more often. And I'll tell it to you now. Uh, it was back in the 2010 World Cup. I took a day off from studying for the bar exam. And I ended up going to the Globe Pub in Chicago with a few friends uh, watching the World Cup games. It was Greece, Nigeria, Argentina, and South Korea, if I remember the group correctly. And obviously me being the Greek. I was one of three people wearing blue t-shirts. My buddy who I was with, one of the guys I ran into had his Columbia jersey on. And uh, apparently whoever was in charge of the South Korea fan party, um, the ESPN zone double booked. So they all just showed up at the Globe Bar. So there was like 90 South Koreans, three Greeks and a Colombian. <laughs> that was how we were watching this game. Chris Armas is there at the request of uh, Jose Cuervo Tequila doing a promo. So he is on top of the bar. He's throwing out jerseys. He takes a Jose Cuervo soccer ball and throws it out, banks off a chandelier, lands right in my lap. So I got this Jose Cuervo ball. I'm like, what am I going to do with this? This thing's deflated. It doesn't even look like it's got anything. 
So I go up to the bar right after and I'm like, Chris, I caught the ball. Will you sign it? And he was more than happy to autograph my Jose Cuervo soccer ball. Um, so I got to shake his hand, just say, Hey, you know, just did the basic thing. Like, Hey, it's a big fan. Loved you in Chicago. Loved watching you play for the U S great to see you out here. Like, you know, best of luck. Good luck. That was very short conversation. He thanked me and then went off to whatever next engagement that he had. But that's my Chris Armas story. It's kind of a fun one. So we'll end on a positive note right there. Fire fans, MLS fans. Thanks again for tuning in. This was episode 59 of the feed the fire podcast. Share the links, share the show. Let's continue to grow this show and the conversation around the fire, major league soccer and soccer in America. Enjoy the playoffs. See you next week.